0: all right welcome back everyone i have the pleasure of interviewing the co-founder and ct of casa Jamison lop jameson thanks for coming on the show my pleasure It's a blast to have you here. So for the people that missed uh, the episode with Andrew or uh, at eCurrency, he was on a couple weeks ago. uh, Can you describe to our listeners what Kaza is, what their platform is, and what they're trying to do?
1: Sure. I mean, what we're really trying to do is what I've been focused on for seven, eight years now, uh, which is bringing the promise of being your own bank to the average person. So we're, we're just trying to make self custody as uh, simple, straightforward, user-friendly, and also bulletproof, uh, especially against foot guns and the user basically screwing up, uh, because there's a million ways you can screw up. And, uh, We do that using a variety of technologies, but nothing novel. Uh, We're we're basically using various standards and technologies that are a part of the Bitcoin ecosystem, Uh, things like multi-sig and hardware devices for key management. And we put them all together in one nice package with a slick uh, mobile app interface on top of it let that uh, help you basically manage your keys and your self custody, and along with that, you're also providing a high level of service. So that if you are new, if you do encounter some weird edge case, then there's someone there to help you, uh, so you don't have to send an email and wait for three months and hope that you know a customer support person will eventually respond to. You.
0: Yeah. Uh, you've obviously been in the space much longer than me. I'm the class of 2020, so I consider myself a very new Bitcoiner. I haven't lived through a full uh, happening cycle or a four-year cycle. So, when did you get into Bitcoin, and what made you develop and start Casa? And and when, if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, I've been a Bitcoin enthusiast for a decade now, and. It was just an interesting side project hobby for me for several years where uh, one of the first things that I did was actually fork the Bitcoin core repository and added... In a bunch of statistics and metrics and data collection, uh, just trying to expose more data for developers and other people in the ecosystem to better understand like what the Bitcoin nodes were doing. And after a couple of years of just going to meetups and uh, talking to people on Twitter and forums, I went full-time in 2015 and started building infrastructure for BitGo, where we were basically helping enterprises secure their hot wallets. And after doing that for three years, I, I did a small pivot and helped co-found Casa, where we're using some of that same technology, like multi-signature technology, and bringing that to the, the retail user, the average pleb, you know, so that they can start to self-custody and And really be confident that they can do that Uh, because I think that's one of the big pieces of friction that's resulting in a lot of people still leaving their keys and their coins with third parties is that they feel like it's safer to trust the experts to take care of that rather than take on the responsibility of doing it themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, if uh, the Canada Freedom Convoy isn't proof of that enough trusting experts or other people to hold your money, I don't know what else is. So I guess, can you take me through the process if you're a pleb and you're just wanted to uh, self-custody your keys, but with the guidance of you guys, what would the process be like?
1: Sure. I mean, we have an entry-level product that ends up being about $10 a month, but really all you need is at least one of the popular hardware devices, uh, whether that's Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card. Um, we're, we're also rolling out support for some of the QR animated QR code-based devices. And um, you know those are a bit more expensive, but I, I think the, the user experience is, is totally worth it. And just go sign up. Uh, we've got a free trial. You can also check out at keys.casa. It's K E Y S. C A S A. And it's it's really just a matter of following the instructions in the mobile app, uh, plugging your device in, or doing the, the QR code setup. And we, we make it a pretty seamless process to get yourself into not only what would be considered a cold storage setup where, where your keys are offline, but a distributed multiple keys set up so that you're essentially eliminating single points of failure by having your keys in multiple different locations with multiple different types of security.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. I guess you. I know you guys have already addressed this, but I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, how do you guys remove yourself from the equation as a point of failure if you guys were to become compromised or you were forced by a government entity or a corporation mm-hmm. to um, basically go against your users or your customers?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, if, if we were a single point of failure, then we'd really be no better than any of the other exchanges or you know, Bitcoin banks, as it were. And that's one of the first things that actually uh, happens when you finish your initial setup with Casa is you receive a personalized email that is a step-by-step guide to what we call the sovereign recovery process, which is basically what are your options of if for any reason Casa ceases to exist or stops responding, becomes unreliable, how do you take your existing keys, your hardware devices and uh, the small amount of information that you need to know really to reconstitute that setup. And you can do that in multiple other types of Bitcoin wallets that are totally unrelated to CASA, we have no control over them. Uh, using them does not rely on any CASA infrastructure. And you know that's one of the big benefits of us not doing anything novel uh, and us using standards, using third party manufacturers that are widely used across the ecosystem, is that as a result, there are a number of different wallets out there that follow the same standards and you can essentially import your your keys and other data into so that you can then manage your funds uh in a worst case scenario even if casa stops working for some reason
0: yeah that's a really important point i guess i want to start transitioning i know you wrote an article back in november called i believe it was called to swat a swatter um i'll post it in the chat for um our platforms but uh, I guess, can you take us on this long journey that kind of goes about security and safety uh, without giving out, uh, I know. I guess, I don't want to give out details of the perpetrator, which you kind of outline in the article, but can you talk about what happened, I think, a better part of five years ago, and then ultimately what the conclusion was?
1: Yeah, so I guess it was in, was it October 2017? It, it has been over four years when i had an incident where essentially my entire neighborhood got shut down by police and it didn't take too long for us to uncover that it was essentially a swatting call or uh, a prank phone call uh, as it were but uh, one that happened to say the right words which triggered a uh, lethal force response from local law enforcement because they thought that people's lives were in danger. So essentially someone claiming to me, me calling uh, my local law enforcement and saying that I had killed people and had hostages and bombs and all this other stuff. It ended without incident because I wasn't even home at the time. And I ran into the police blockade trying to get to my house. And this was... I mean, this was obviously fortunate. And if if not for that one thing, it might have ended differently. Um, but this actually, and you know, I have several really long blog posts that go into all the details, but that's actually an interesting point of operational security that I brought up, which was that when I post things, I, I try not to do it in ways that would give away exactly what I'm doing or where I am at the time. And what I believed happened that morning is that I posted something at probably 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning talking about it being Monday and it was going to be a long week. And I suspect that that's when my attacker saw that and said, oh, he must have just gotten out of bed. So I, that was the perfect time to swat him. But in fact, I was already on the other side of town uh, at the gym because I'm I'm a really early riser and uh, like to work out early in the morning. And so it just so happened that, you know, they thought that that was a great time to swap me and it ended up not being a great time. But fast forward a a year or two, uh, basically I announced that I had been swatted, but didn't really say much more about the details for nearly a year because I spent the next year basically tearing down my entire life and rebuilding it with a a focus on privacy, and I felt like one of my goals was I wanted to be able to go after the attacker without worrying about more attacks against myself, um, and also I didn't want to have to completely give up my identity and my reputation that I had already built up around it and start all over again, uh, you know, in order to protect my privacy. So from a privacy perspective, I kind of took the hard route there uh, because I. I wanted to keep using my my real name and yes it is my real name. Uh, unfortunately, I was not smart enough, you know, a decade ago to think about creating a pseudonym. And so then it turned into really like a four-year-long ordeal of talking to private investigators, talking to a number of different attorneys, collecting tips, uh, eventually talking to the FBI, but it took like three years to ever get someone at the FBI's attention. And and that was also just sort of fortuitous, uh, networking connection. And after, after many years, uh, and handing over all the information I collected to the FBI, it took them almost a year after receiving the information to get back and say, Hey, we, we found the guy and, uh, Unfortunately, the, the federal district attorney has declined to prosecute because they're a minor. And they just apparently, you know, the federal system doesn't really have good uh, justice or enforcement when it comes to minors. And so they usually just sort of get off. And so we thought it was all over at that point. But then a few months later, the, the state district attorney actually came to us and said, Hey, uh, we are interested in prosecuting. And at that point, things happened pretty quickly uh the the guy in question didn't contest anything he pled guilty to all the charges um, i actually ended up flying out there and giving my own witness statement and uh you know he basically got probation and a handful of other terms that he has to follow by for the next few years uh since he did not have a criminal record um, so it was it was a kind of a, a weird conclusion like i, I really I, I had hoped that it had been an adult who should have known better and been able to take responsibility for stuff. But, you know, I get it. Um, I think we all do stupid stuff when we're kids. It's just, it's kind of crazy that we're at the point now where due to advancements in technology and, and certain times when law enforcement and the justice system can't keep up with it, you can have these really weird asymmetries. So, you know, some like 14-year-old kid who knows a little bit about tech you know just enough to be dangerous is able to actually have lethal force arbitrarily pointed at really anybody that they want because very few people have sufficient privacy to prevent you uh, from being able to find their home address and and then that in, ends up being so difficult to to have law enforcement even care enough to try to track them down and then even when they do track them down, the justice system isn't really prepared to do much about it if, if they're just a young kid without a record. So it's a, you know, it's a very interesting and complicated long case, and I'm, I'm just glad to finally have it behind me now.
0: That's wild. Uh, There's so many threads I want to pull on here. I mean, especially because I'm the Twitch project manager, as well as the producer for this live stream. Uh, Swatting is a pretty common occurrence. I won't say pretty common, but uh, it's more well known in the gaming community. When you're playing video games, you're most likely. That's that's really
1: where it started out. And then it sort of branched out into other things. And now like celebrities and politicians and, and now like anybody who pisses anybody off enough uh, should worry about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So like, for my point of view, uh, it's definitely an area that kind of worries me if you know, this can happen to to quite literally anyone. So it's definitely an area that I would want to improve on. What would you recommend for a person to start since you kind of went on this four year long manhunt and uh, trying to hide your identity yourself? It can be an overwhelming or daunting task. Where would you recommend a, a Bitcoin pleb start with trying to improve their privacy and security to start off the bat? Yeah,
1: I mean the the easiest thing, and what I should have done, but you know, in hindsight, uh, it's hard to predict uh, that you'll go from having a couple dozen people following you to having hundreds of thousands of people uh, as an audience. But of course, that's that's the other thing that I think people need to understand. You know, in the the communications age you might be a pleb today, but tomorrow, if you say or do the right, or in some cases, the wrong thing, then that can attract a level of attention that you're simply not prepared for. You know, you, you can essentially become a micro celebrity if you go viral. And if you then have the attention of hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of people attracted at you, then it's just a numbers game that some of them are going to be deranged and or willing to do things that could cause cause harm to you. So really I see it more as like anyone who participates on the public internet needs to worry about this potential edge case because you don't know when you might hit the lottery as it were uh, and go viral and have too much attention. And and so from that perspective, like one of the easiest things to do is just not use your real name. I mean, there's obviously benefits to using your real name, um, but if you think of security and privacy as complementary, then I consider privacy to be like the outermost layer of good security. And you know, if you can prevent an attacker from even being able to target you in the first place, then... It doesn't really matter what the rest of your security is. Though you should have good security. You you should have many, many good layers of security regardless. But the the further out in the layers of security and then privacy that you can stop an attacker from coming at you, the better. Essentially, the safer you are, the more easily you can sleep at night. So, you know, if you are uh, participating in... Uh, discourse on social media or other public forums, um, especially if you're in a sort of fringe or political space where discussions can get very heated and people might get angry, that is certainly a situation where I I recommend using a pseudonym that can't be tied back to you. Other than that, uh, there is really no limit to how much time and resources you can put into improving your privacy. Uh, I think the most important thing for people to understand is that it's not an all or nothing thing. It can certainly feel overwhelming, especially if you start to read some of the articles I've written about the extreme privacy things that I've implemented. But if you do want to start going down that rabbit hole, uh, there's a ton of good resources. I have a, a privacy resources section on my website, uh, Bitcoin.page will get you there. Though the I would say the, the kind of privacy Bible, at least for Americans, is going to be uh, Michael Bazell's privacy guide, which you can find on Amazon for around $40. And uh, he's been coming out with a new edition of that almost every year and each each new edition adds like another hundred fifty pages. So I think it's up to like four hundred or five hundred pages at this point. And it talks about you know every possible aspect of your life and how you can implement better privacy for it. But you don't need to go to the extreme that I did, which is creating legal entities to, you know, own all of your property. Also, that is something that is very jurisdiction specific. It's hard to do outside of America, but you can do things like use a VPN. You know, it doesn't take more than an hour or two for a new person to figure out how to set up and install a VPN. Install ad blockers, same thing. That, that'll that help protect you from just sort of everyday corporate surveillance that happens as you're going around the internet. And um, I can tell you from experience because in my pre-Bitcoin engineering life, I worked for a marketing company and my job was to essentially write analytics jobs that were being run across these huge clusters of data sets with you know, hundreds of petabytes of raw uh, tracking information that were being collected from things like email campaigns and website visits and, and whatnot. So there's a, a ton of data that you just leave strewn about the internet as you're going about your daily life and and everything that you can do to minimize that footprint or uh, obfuscate it and make it look like something else is going to be good. Yep.
2: Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Jimmy Song said, you know, uh, in the United States, we're addicted to free. So that's why, you know, the Mm -hmm. Facebooks, the Googles, the YouTubes, uh, I know they're owned by the same company, but all of those things that offer free services, but basically you become the product. Uh, Obviously, Mm -hmm. they're selling your data and they'll take anything they can get to marketing, to advertising. I mean, just Google, you can look up Google AdWords, you can look up trying to run a marketing campaign on Facebook and you just see the prices. I think that I was saw numbers recently. I think it's like $150 per person uh, per day, maybe. Maybe that's too much. But basically, it's like some absurd amount of basically they're pricing what it's worth to sell a campaign to this subset of a population. It's normally $150 per person, which is chum change to a lot of these big tech companies. But when you think about it in terms of other businesses, they're just selling your privacy and your data, uh, which is pretty absurd.
1: You don't pay for it. You're the product. And uh, that's actually, we have a very strong privacy policy at Casa that you can read on our website where we have extreme limitations on what we'll do with any data. And more importantly, uh, is the fact that we just don't collect much data. You know, all you really need is an email address uh, to get set up with us. And of course, we happily recommend people just like create a, a new Proton Mail or Tutanota or whatever privacy preserving uh, email address for that.
0: I was going to say, I think you guys even have a service that you can do it pseudo-anonymously. Obviously, I guess it would be tied to a bank account, or I guess you guys would accept Bitcoin, and then you could use yep. uh, another email to do so to pay for that.
1: Yep, definitely accept Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we do have you know data purging policies within our our commerce mechanisms as well, but. You know, if you really want to be paranoid, then you shouldn't trust because you can't verify whether or not we've purchased any data. But if you pay us in Bitcoin, you know that you know we don't have uh, address or other financial, like personal identifiable information on you.
0: I don't know if you guys do this, but by any chance, do you guys do a coin join as you accept Bitcoin payments? I know that's something that Francis kind of took to the extreme because he interpreted the law with uh, bull Bitcoin that anyone that sends Bitcoin to his exchange, he coin joins because he said it's in order to protect Uh, his customers' privacy. Obviously, with everything going on with the Freedom Convoy, I'll see if they are going to try and go after him or bull Bitcoin in general to get that information. But I know that he said that it's in the best interest of privacy of them and their customers. That's
1: a good question, which I'll have to look into on our BTC Pay server. I'm not sure offhand if that's possible to do. If your BTC pay server doesn't have the private keys readily available, because uh, okay. you know, I think that is a more interactive protocol. But the answer is no for right now, but I definitely should go look into it and see you know, what the requirements are uh, to enable pay join offers, basically.
0: Yeah, I didn't mean to get you guys, but I know that was something that he did, which I thought was very clever. And I think it'd be cool for other businesses to implement going forward. A question that I have from uh, someone at the company is: What do you think the biggest fault is that someone can prevent in general, uh, in regards to security and privacy?
1: It's tricky because it's like: Are we talking about the the most common thing or the the worst possible thing? Right? Is you know, the, is there's is a whole spectrum. So, you know, the like I said earlier, the the most common thing or the easiest thing to prevent against is just normal day to day corporate surveillance. When it comes to like your regular day-to-day privacy and security, I mean it it's it's gonna sound lame, but really I think one of the biggest things that people fail to do is just use a, a password manager to make sure that they are generating unique passwords. Like Most people that I know have a handful of passwords that they keep in their head and they reuse them everywhere. And that's really the best way I think to guarantee that you're going to get pwned at some point, because it's the same, it's really the same type of problem with using credit cards is that you're going out, you have this little bit of sensitive information, whether it's a password or a credit card number, what other, you know, banking information and as you go about your life you're interacting with hundreds if not thousands of third parties and every time you have some sort of interaction with them you're giving them this private data so essentially you're 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 just s- sowing your private data all over the internet all over the world and it's only a matter of time before one of those third parties gets compromised uh and it doesn't really matter if they get hacked by an external hacker, or if they have an internal, like rogue employee that siphons off all the data or what, it doesn't matter. It's just, once again, sort of a law of large numbers that over a long enough period of time, um, that data is going to end up in the hands of an adversarial entity. So what do you do to mitigate that risk? Well, you you don't reuse data, you know, just like you shouldn't be reusing Bitcoin addresses uh, when you're receiving funds, you preferably should not be giving your credit card data to everybody. You should not be giving the same password to everybody. That way, if and when that data gets compromised, it's limited, you know, it's siloed to that one service or to that one credit card. Um, you know, people may be confused right now of like, well, how do you not give your credit card to everybody? Well, that's that's where you need to use virtual credit cards or or prepaid debit cards or whatever. Like I, I really like the uh, privacy.com service. There's at least half a dozen other services out there that do the same thing where you can essentially, just like with a password manager, generate a new credit card that then gets locked to that one merchant. So, and you can even put limits uh, and, and other, uh, you know, security mechanisms on it. So that's, that's what I, I really, I think it comes down to like understanding, you know, how to silo off uh, these different pieces of sensitive information so that it's okay if they get compromised. Um, it's, it's really, it's not, not any different than one of the, the major things that we, use that CASA when we're thinking about architecture, which is single points of failure. If you're, if you're using the same password everywhere, if you're using the same credit card everywhere, if you're using the same private key everywhere, um, it becomes a single point of failure. And so that's why once again, like with CASA, with having a distributed multi-key setup, we, we did that because we understand that people are human, Things happen, edge cases happen, and you need to build a system. You need to build preferably every aspect of your life in such a way that a failure is tolerated and can be easily recovered from. And you you don't want a, a failure to be potentially catastrophic.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And even uh, to your point of like reusing data, I think all people or the majority of people are guilty of this. You know, use the same passwords, whether they're uh, your birthday, your last four digits of your social for your pin, you know, constantly reusing the same passwords. And I know as the hackers get the information, they get smarter too. You know, Mm -hmm. if they can tie my name, my identity and my email together, they're going to start using, okay, this is a password that was used in a different database. This is his birthday. This is his pin, like last four digits of social and stuff. Um, I guess what are ways that you kind of avoid? uh, I guess you've kind of brought it up there, but even perfect example, I'm moving right now a way to kind of try and increase my privacy. They kind of went hand in hand. It wasn't, I'm going to do this for more privacy, but it just kind of worked in my favor. But when I was going to set up my internet, surprisingly, you know, you call them, you say what kind of internet connection you want, the router, the modem, all that they were asking me for my social credit secu- check. Didn't they? Yeah. They, they are not even yeah. that they wanted to do my social security number and I literally yeah. stopped them. And I said, I'm, I'm not giving you that information. And the person just yeah. kind of like stopped at his tracks and he was like, Oh, okay. Like, why not? I'm like, cause I don't feel like giving that information. And we just kept going on with the transaction, which was fine, which is the irony yeah. of it all. But uh, yeah, he was asking for some really private information that I didn't want to give. And luckily for my new home setup uh i have a separate mailing address compared to my actual address so i was okay with giving you know the po box or whatever i have as my mailing as the address of the location i'm going but it was very weird like yes for social security number and stuff so in a way that's more and more surveillance what are ways that you combat that
1: yeah so that's also that That's one of the things that can be awkward, especially when you're new to trying to be more privacy conscious, is you start to recognize all of the times that you interact with third parties and they ask you for information that's just not necessary and you know, obviously they're doing this for marketing purposes or and in the case of various like utility and services companies they're doing it to protect themselves from you know bad credit you know customers that uh, that don't pay their bills on the service side i found most of the time that um, you can bypass credit checks if you offer just to make a deposit. You know, I'll pay you up front. I will give you enough money that you don't have to worry about my credit worthiness. When it comes to a lot of other merchants, or especially, it's, it's, it's those face-to-face or phone or interactions, you know, the real-time stuff that's more... Um, awkward because you know they ask the question because it's part of their template right it's like it's the company guidelines of how they need to interact with customers and in many cases they're just not used to that response because most people don't think about the consequences of giving away all this information and so they just will answer anything that's asked of them and so yeah you have to be willing to say that you know you don't give away private information like that. And that's when it can get kind of weird because then depending on like what their logical branching tree of how to react to that is, then you might end up having to like escalate to somebody else. Um, I've certainly had some odd roundabout interactions over the years where I was basically like the one guy who was asking to do something in a way that that wasn't part of corporate procedure, and so would have to keep pushing, keep pushing. Um, yeah, this is where sometimes you you have to be insistent. You have to you know put your 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 foot down, draw a line, and and basically say, look, uh, well, hopefully it's not a monopoly service. Hopefully you can say, look, I'll just you know have to go you know call your competitor and see how they react.
0: Yeah. I was able to get around it and they were okay with taking a deposit and stuff. So I was able to um, get around it, but definitely when I said I wasn't giving my social, the guy just kind of stopped in his track and no one had ever really, or at least recently not opted to give their social security number, which I just thought was a big breach of privacy.
1: I mean, so I think I tweeted about this, but I actually, i I had an issue recently, which I've had before, but where like i said i don't own property in my real name and that is an edge case that throws a number of uh, companies for a loop especially insurance companies because i start to explain that the property is owned by a business and then they start asking me for all the information about the business and like revenue and stuff i'm like no it's just it's an asset holding business (laughs) and and most of the time they're like oh we we don't know how to deal with that and uh other times though, like uh, I know when I, I bought a car one time, I, I started going down the similar path of they're like, this is really weird, we don't really know how to do this. And then like the guy calls his manager over and the manager's like, oh, I've seen this once before. It's like, I, I know what you're doing. Like we can we can help you out here. But it's, it is, you do sometimes feel like a trailblazer which is really odd because like this should not be something that, that is like
0: blazing a trail just to protect your privacy. And I think it's even a weird thing that you're almost putting a target on your back, but in the sense for security and privacy, it's almost like they're like they remember you because it's not a normal occurrence. So they're like, "Ah, you're you're standing out. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's not great. Like you, you normally you want to blend in with the crowd, but in in my experience, um, it, it it can be odd, like during that initial setup. But I think most of these people just quickly forget about you and move on. (laughs)
0: You, you would hope so that, you know, they don't remember what they had for lunch or breakfast. So they're not going to remember the transaction they have with you. But it definitely always kind of not irks me, but I guess worries me that it's like, oh, they made a note of like, this is a unique customer. And for whatever that's worth, whether they think we're selling drugs or we own a lot of money or, you know, for whatever nefarious reason that they would want to go after us or learn more. Uh, that's just something that always kind of like creeps over me or, or worries me a little bit.
1: And so, you know, if you read through a bunch of my privacy stuff, then you'll find that really what most of this stuff comes down to is um, if it's not simply withholding information, then it's uh, using a proxy to protect your information. And a proxy can be many different things. You know, people generally think of it in terms of internet terms and, and like VPNs and stuff, and that's one kind. But in uh, in meat space, as it were, you can have other humans be proxies for you. Uh, whether that is like uh, for the the physical mail delivery, you know, you can get a PO box, you can get private remailers uh, that handle your mail and then forward it wherever you want. The, the sort of extreme end of this, which I have had to use a few times, is legal proxies. Where I know there was one time a utility company. Was really insistent that they have like all my information. And eventually, because it was the monopoly, you know, the only utility company, like you want electricity. Uh, what I did is I, I called my attorney. And I said, look, you need to go use your magical legalese to explain to this, this company, like how this stuff is going to work. And, uh, you know, unfortunately that can get expensive as well, but uh, there's usually an option
0: available. Yeah, with uh, unlimited time and unlimited resources, you can pretty much get anything done. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I I hope that it went in your favor, at least that the monopoly didn't take out harsh punishment against you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I think, one of the bad conclusions from this journey is that privacy is not cheap. Um, Now, there are a lot of things that you can do to protect your privacy that don't cost money. But they will always cost you at least some sort of time and and you know learning curve that you have to get up uh, to speed to understand. And this is the downside to all of the defaults in various aspects of our lives being very poor for our privacy is that you have to work against the grain. you have to blaze that trail. and you know blazing a trail is inherently hard um, because there's a lot of obstacles in your path. And so that's why it's, it's unfortunate that um, I think this is one of the reasons I'm a, a bit more pessimistic on gen- privacy in general is because, first of all, we know that most people don't think about it or care about it, at least until it's too late and something has gone wrong. And then if you do care about it and start uh, trying to improve your own privacy, you find out very quickly that it's... It's not necessarily easy, especially if you want to be comprehensive about it. So and unless you're someone who's highly motivated or has had some sort of edge case attack like I have, um, it seems like it's going to be relegated more to the enthusiasts and you know adversarially minded folks.
0: Yeah, it doesn't help when the uh, financial incentives are multi-billion dollar businesses that are in the business of selling people's information. So there's a financial incentive uh, in order to do so, I guess going back to like retaliation and, and stuff like that. So uh, to your article, obviously, they're a minor and I don't want you to give out any information you don't feel comfortable about. But when you get went to give your testimony and, and statement, I, I'm assuming maybe you talked to them, or maybe your lawyer advised to not talk to it. Do you think this person would maliciously do something to get back to you? Cause obviously uh, even though the punishment might be small, do you worry that in once he gets off his probation or whatever would come after you in, in a later function, or at least attempt to, I know you've put up roadblocks and ways to try and prevent that.
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I, I really do think that it was just a guy who, first of all, he didn't know who I was. I, or at least I believe when he told me that he didn't know who I was that you know he was he was basically hanging out with the wrong crowd, got goaded into using his skills for this particular thing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not too worried about him. I'm I'm just worried about anyone else. Uh, you know, any number of other more malicious people who might be willing to actually use physical violence. You know, the 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 guys who were sitting in a basement and you know hanging out in darknet forums and you know swapping hacks and all this other stuff. It's an interesting subculture, but I think it's very easy if you're in that subculture to completely miss the ramifications of the consequences of what could happen to you. Whereas it's a very different type of criminal who is willing to say come up to you and actually point a gun at you and, you know, use physical violence because when you, when you cross that physical threshold, like they are actually putting themselves in physical danger and it's completely obvious, like what the level of risk that they're taking is. So that's, that's really more of the criminal element that I'm worried about these days rather than the uh, keyboard warriors.
0: Yeah, and it goes to your point. It's almost like you were bummed that this miner was the one that got you and kind of it seems like he didn't know you. I guess you were kind of hoping to get the people that gave the command or the per the the people or person that uh, issued the order to go after you because it kind of seems it was kind of a step away, uh, probably trying to increase their own privacy uh, in the attack that you kind of ensued against them. Uh, I guess physical attacks in the meat space, what would you give to a pleb that's going to a conference? Because in case the listeners don't know, uh, Bitcoin Magazine is hosting one of the biggest and best Bitcoin conferences coming up April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. I hope Jameson will be there. I know his company will be there. uh, so excited to see some of his employees as well as him, if he's going. Uh, but how would you recommend a pleb uh, have security and privacy at a conference like this?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing you have to understand is that uh, criminals in the area are going to know that this is happening. And in fact, I believe there was at least one case uh, last year of a guy who got in a taxi and the taxi driver basically asked for his phone and was starting to screw around with it. and. and you gave the impression that he was like trying to open up his wallets and and steal his money. So uh, you just have to be vigilant and understand that this conference, because of its, its size and publicity, it's, it's going to attract attention. And so if you're going to the conference, Maybe when you're not physically at the venue, don't wear crypto stuff that that, that you know makes you stand out. Um, definitely don't be walking around with you know, large sums of money that are easily accessible. Like, you should not have. Um, a hot wallet on your phone that has, you know, thousands or tens of thousands. I mean, I've seen people who had like hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single signature wallet on their phone because they just left it there for so many years and never bothered to move it off. But consider the fact that, you know, you yourself can be a single point of failure. Um, I talk about wrench attacks and physical attacks, a decent amount, um, though they are very rare. Most likely the you know ninety nine point nine percent of people who attend the conference will not have anything bad happen to them. however, uh, just due to how many people are there and the fact that crime has certain rates of things that happen, you know probably will have one or two people uh, who have a bad experience and a lot of this stuff, this security privacy, whatever, I think of it in terms of insurance in that you you know that bad things happen in the world and a lot of them are fairly rare and so the question comes down to how much of your time and resources are you going to invest to insure yourself against one of these edge cases and you know, just just doing something as simple as like not walking around with Bitcoin logos all over you when you go out to the nightclub where you might get you know something slipped in your drink. I think that's a like a pretty simple ask. Like, it doesn't take a lot of resources to do. But yeah, don't don't be stupid. I mean, you just uh, need to make sure that you aren't attracting attention and understand that if for some reason you do attract attention. That you need to be able to mitigate, you know, what the possible downsides are.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I know some people don't have street smarts, and I'm not the most intimidating dude standing at a stature of like a five six. So uh, I'm not the scariest or biggest dude on the street, but definitely um, to your point, kind of be street smart. You know, don't if you can avoid wearing Bitcoin merchandise. Or uh, even talking about it, you know, say that you're in the financial sector. If you're out of the bar, don't say you work for a Bitcoin company. Uh, you know, I'll definitely say I work in a media company. And, you know, I'll probably get harassed for saying, you know, I'm the spreading bad news. And I'll, I'll go with that saying I'm mainstream media, but they don't have to know it's for a Bitcoin company. Yeah. And I think that's pretty important. So, Jameson, I think we're getting to the end of the time that I had you. I don't want to keep you cuz I know you're quite busy with your day job and running a company. So, is there anything else that you'd like to send off our listeners with?
1: Um, you know, just not to get, let it get to your head, right? Is that, you know, I talk about bad things happening all the time, but I've also been on the front lines of of helping people self-custody there funds for many, many years. And so I've seen really some of the worst case scenarios. They're still very rare, um, but I think that they're useful data points and they're they're learning lessons. And a lot of the decisions that went into how we've architected Casa and how we continue to develop the product are based upon very hard earned, uh, decisions that people have really learned the hard way over the years, uh, sometimes through catastrophic loss or, or, uh, just having a really, really bad time as a result of, of one particular decision that was made. So there's, like I said, an overwhelming level of, of things that you can learn or dive into. Um, but also, you know, you, 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 there's no rush, you have plenty of time, you can start small, um, spend a few hours on the weekend, just digging into some of the easier stuff. And just just doing that, just investing a few hours into your security and privacy will already put you ahead of 98% of other people in the world. And that's one of the other major factors when it comes to security, uh, in a variety of different ways, is you don't have to have perfect security; it, you just have to have better security than the guy next to you. You know, it's it's kind of like the um, the old adage about you don't have to be able to outrun the bear; you just have to be able to run faster than the other guy. Uh, is because we know there will be criminals, there will be malicious people out there trying to attack people, and you if you think from their perspective. They're looking for the soft targets. They want to get the best return on their investment. And so if they look at you, well, preferably you'd make it so they don't even look at you in the first place. But if that fails and they look at you and they're also looking at any number of other targets, then you want them to say, no, that looks like it's going to be too much trouble. I'm going to try to attack that other person instead.
0: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think that's a really good point. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and I look forward.